What would your response be if a family member showed up on Thanksgiving Day, heavily intoxicated, at this meal you prepared, spent all this time slaving over, and instead of everybody, you know, everybody goes to join hands, and instead this family member, they're not feeling a warm and fuzzy from their intoxication, but they're puking all over grandma and urinating in the, in the dining room corner and cursing at all the family. What would your response be to such a thing? As a treasured member of the family, his behavior isn't a one-time mistake, but it's a lifestyle that affects everyone all the time. Every time your family gets a chance, they talk to him about it, but it's kind of brushed off. What would your response be? What would you do? You might ensure that that person is removed from that situation and put in some form of rehab for their health and life and for the lives of your family. You would let them lose freedom and connections to be able to get serious about their problem so that they could get the healing that they need. And be a part of the family that they belong to. I keep saying Corinthians is hard, so I'm just going to stop saying that and just ask you all to turn your expectations that it is hard. This is not a week that I've been looking forward to. But it's what we need to hear. If we already knew and put into practice what God teaches us through his word, we wouldn't have to hear it, right? But here we are. Paul is writing to the dysfunctional family of the Corinthians. The family that's getting fat and drunk during communion. Yes, read about it (laughs) later on. While other people starve. They've been treating others with contempt and judging in an inappropriate way, and they've been using the freedom that they have in Christ to harm others and to destroy their faith. This time we're going to do something a little different. We're going to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians 5. Instead of breaking it up, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 5. You're going to see this same family has been taking grace for granted. 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's the part you should underline. That is the purpose for all of this. It is the restoration that is to be sought. That's verse 5. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that it may not 
so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. And you can underline this. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims, underline that, to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slander, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is both convicting and an opposition of how we do things, yes? We think that grace means tolerating sin, but it's quite the opposite. Grace and mercy were not given because God decided to forgive us. The blessing of eternal life is given because Jesus died for it. People might argue with me on this, but Jesus was not soft on sin. He gave his very life to deliver us from it. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Yes, I agree. This is a condition of the heart he's talking about here. That the removal of an eye cannot fix. But we should be rejecting sin like our lives depend on it. It's something we all join in arms to do. It's the reason that the fellowship of believers is so essential in our lives. That accountability and the love that we show each other is so important. Because you put your faith in Christ. And you decide to be baptized. Identifying yourself with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus is my Savior and I belong to him. And I want to follow him my entire life because of the love he's shown towards me. That's your greatest desire. That is what you want. So when you're not doing it, what should happen? Should it be ignored? Should we let it go? Should we let the people that we love, who their greatest desire is to walk with Christ, disregard the very thing that they really want? We should be rejecting, our, rejecting sin like our lives depend on it. We should distance ourselves from sin instead of embracing it or letting it slowly seep in. Our new life lives demand that we cling to the Holy Spirit so that we will resist temptation. Don't be mistaken, we will and we all do sin. We continue to fall short, but Jesus is the one who has made us holy made us his temple, his dwelling place on earth. So we don't cling to the world, we cling to Christ. So what are the consequences of forsaking the cross, of mistaking, this is one of my, you ever heard somebody say, mistake my, don't mistake my kindness for weakness? What are the consequences of mistaking God's kindness for weakness? 
or God's grace for weakness. If there is not condemnation in Jesus Christ, then what is the result of rebellion and sin today among us? Discipline. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Because God disciplines us, it is another facet in which we recognize how much he loves us. Hebrews 12, 4 through 6 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. If you are not disciplined by God, you don't belong to him. We think that being disciplined by God is something that excludes us from him. No, it includes us with him. God does not and has never tolerated sin. He put his son to death on the cross so that all who call in the name of the lamb would be saved. We have become his children not because of something we did, but because he has made us so. And as our father, he has an obligation to do what we dislike so that we will grow to be like Christ, so that we will continue to be sanctified. We like, this is one of our favorite verses, right? God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. But we insert the word good too early. He makes all things not just good things. He makes all things work together for the good of those who love us. There has been a time in our life where a whooping from our parents was a good thing. There's been a time in our life where a friend intervened when we didn't want them to. And it made a big difference in us. Let's check ourselves. If we are doing everything we can to cover or hide our sins or the sins of our family here, if we are denying the correction we need and rejecting obedience and rejecting disobedience or dis, uh, discipline from God, are we really doing the loving thing? Isn't it more loving to drive our brother to rehab so that he doesn't overdose than to turn a blind eye to what is obviously killing him? If you were robbing banks, shouldn't your family turn you in so that you would spend time in jail rather than dying in a gunfight? This is what's hard. This is what enables us is everybody wants their sins accepted and justified. That's our secret, right? Everybody wants their sins justified and accepted. But when we affirm sin, we are communicating that the cross was for nothing. 
Nobody cares about God until they need him. And if we tell our brothers and sisters that sin is okay, why do they need God? What are they even being saved from? Romans 6, 1 through 2, I'll have somebody read that one. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Amen. Complacency towards sin has an effect on the whole body of believers. This is what Paul is talking about when he said, when he made the analogy of the yeast, right? It spreads through the whole batch of dough. Just like we have been separated from our previous lives before we were born again, just like God has separated us from our sin and the condemnation that goes along with it, in the same way, we need to continue to do that. We need to separate ourselves from things that people say are okay, but God says is not. Think about the whole section that, uh, all of chapter 5, uh, 1 Corinthians, that Paul wrote. Just previously, he had accused them of being worldly, and now he is scolding them for their intolerance or excuse me, for their tolerance of something that even the sinful world finds evil. You guys, this is, this is so bad that even the people who don't care think it's bad. If we look at all the rebuke that Paul gives the Corinthians in his first letter, it is obvious that they were unwilling to do and to say what needed to be done. There were people in the church who told Paul about these problems but they were not handling those problems themselves. Because Paul is not with them when he writes this letter. People are going, hey, by the way, Apostle Paul, we're messing up over here. And he's saying, you guys should take care of this. If we look at all the rebuke that Paul gives the Corinthians in his first letter, it is obvious that they were unwilling to do and say what needed to be done. They are losing their saltiness, and their tolerance of sin, division, and evil practices is destroying them. Keep reading through 1 Corinthians, and you'll see all these ways. Even at communion, they had corrupted it by being drunk and causing others to starve. These little things built into bigger things. We should live like God wants, not because he commands us, but because of what he has done for us. That's what motivates us. He makes us want to please and honor him with our lives. Now you're saying in your head, you might be, but now I want you to. But the Bible says that we're not supposed to judge. It says that a bunch of places. You're right, it does. Do not, we have read, do not judge, do not judge. Either the Bible is contradicting itself or this is another kind of judgment. Don't be a hypocrite that ignores their own sinful nature. 
Don't discredit the apostles and separate the enlightened from the unenlightened. The judgment that we are warned against has to do with condemnation. But this judgment has to do with accountability. It has to do with love and restoration. It has to do with spiritual growth and the integrity of the body of Christ. We are commanded to judge and given the authority to do so. It's a taboo word in our culture, and now it is in the entirety of the church, too. But you judge all the time, right? When you go up to the fridge and you, like, pop it open and you take out that gallon of milk, what do you do first? You smell it. You're judging it to see if it's rotten or not. Because if you just blindly drink that, it might cause more harm than good. You judge the character of a friend to share personal struggles with. You judge your co-workers to ensure that they have your safety in mind and that you're all working towards the same goal. Judgment is not bad. Hypocritical condemnation is. Judgment is not bad. Hypocritical condemnation is. Well, what's the difference? First, I think it would be wise to stop here. We should not and we will not judge people who belong to this world. That's a big mistake that Christians make. Judging everyone around us and completely ignoring what's going on in here. In here. You can not expect a life lived by the Spirit from a person he is not present in. Thistles produce thistles and grapes produce grapes. Now, another caveat I want to share. If you have been hurt by a person who claimed to love Christ but treated you in the opposite way, that does not mean that discipline should be eradicated just because it was misused. That's another reason that we reject discipline is because somebody used it improperly in the past in our lives. So now I want nothing to do with authority in my life. I want nothing to do with submission because I was hurt in that way. But the discipline that we are rejecting as a whole is something that's good for us. It's part of our sanctification. That what grows us closer more and more into the image of Christ. If being judged or held accountable by your fellow believers terrifies you, for a reason other than past abuse, then there is a possibility you might be using that fear or that excuse to protect sin in your life. And that's how it thrives. Either in the dark or in the open. You leave my sin alone and I'll leave your sin alone. And we'll walk hand in hand as we lead people away from God. This kind of rebuke Paul is talking about is greatly beneficial to us. And it's one that I experienced myself. Let me quell your fear with part of my testimony. When I lived in Eugene in the late 90s, which is kind of weird to say, I spent a lot of my time with my cousins. As much as I could, I stayed at their house. It was like home to me. And they were like my brothers. My half-brothers didn't exist at that time. 
I had prayed and prayed, God, give me brothers. I just want a brother. And I had my cousins. They were the ones who took me to church, got me involved in youth group, and treated me like family. During that time, I decided to accept Christ as my Savior and had been baptized. And the time that they invested in me was a huge part of who I am today. But they had clear boundaries in their house. If you cursed, the brothers would punch your arm. The very moment you slipped up, all the brothers were just in constant, that was their level of accountability. They would just slug you as hard as they could. Kind of like interior policing. They didn't keep secrets from their dad. If you messed up, you paid the consequences. But forgiveness and mercy were offered. We had ridiculous amounts of fun, and we often got in trouble for that fun. There's this game called King of the Mattress, where you, it's like a last man standing to the death, which is really fun. Um, <laughs> wrist rocket, we, anyway, we shot each other with paintball guns in the backyard with no shirts on and all sorts of ridiculous things that got us into trouble. Between all the brothers, they had tons of friends over all the time. You guys know in your mind, maybe that house of your friends where everybody, like all the friends go to because that family's like awesome, right? You spend all your time there. That was their house. We were all treated like family. But Todd, the dad, he had a strict policy. If you did something of corrupt moral character, you were banished. You were not welcome back in his house. Period. My first years at school in Eugene were okay. I was really treated terribly. But their house was a safe place for me to be. All the kids at school were pull knives on you kind of stuff. Um, but that was a safe place for me to be. Where they loved me. Even though, even though you know, I, got, I wasn't the one punching the arm very often. <laughs> Over the following years in high school, I was harassed less. And I was welcomed by new, fran- by new friends that I kind of got in this click with. Those friends made terrible choices. And bad company corrupts good character. As a result, I compromised my own character and made bad choices too. I tried to be present in the places and the parties without engaging in the wrong things that other people were doing. That slowly changed. One night I was at a party that I should not have been with a girl I shouldn't have been with, and I brought my cousins along. When they failed to be at home on time, Todd showed up. He gathered up his boys And he banished me. I was no longer welcome to his house or to spend or talk to any of my cousins. At that time, it was just another thing that I had lost. I would soon have no family or home to return to. So I quickly 
couch hopped my way to a dog bed at a friend's house. This was one of the many situations that God used to crush me. I had received Jesus, but had turned to my own sinful way. And without drastic intervention, I would have continued on a path away from him. I would have many other crushing experiences. Loss of family, loss of my finger, which is a longer story. Going to war, all those things God used me to rip me away from this world. And many years later, after God had done the hard work of disciplining me, he changed my life again. I eventually returned to my cousin's house. And in repentance, I apologized to Todd. And I was forgiven. And to this day, out of all the friends and all the family that has ever been banished from his house, I am the only one who has ever been welcomed back. And now I can walk in on any day and be a part of that family as somebody who belongs and have a place at their table as family. In your family or in your church, it could be time to get serious about the love you have for each other. To say the difficult things, to take the hard road and approach the persistent problems that are killing the people that you love. And for all of us to be open to the discipline we need. Now, I have to add the caveat that I'm not telling you to have the most terrible Thanksgiving this week that you've ever had. But I am saying submit yourselves to God. Whether you are the one who has to say the hard things or you're the one who has to hear the hard things. Be open to the discipline we need. Can I get somebody to read Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20? If your brother or sister sins, <clears throat> go and point it out, point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they do not listen to you, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen then to the church, treat them as you would, as you would a pagan or a tax collector. <laughs> Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if, you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So you can see how this is supposed to be approached, right? This is not supposed to be running around poking everybody else in the eyeball. 
there's a methodical and clear process for how we are to lead each other to restoration and to be accountable to one another. And this is done with authority. That verse at the end that's often misquoted, or not misquoted, but taken out of context, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. That's a matter of the authority of God in this purpose. The purpose of this discipline is the integrity and the purity of the body of Christ and the restoration of its people. Restoration is the purpose of this correction. In your church, it's probably time that we submit to one another in love. I want to live my life as a disciple who is following Christ. And if I'm not, I want to know. And if I refuse to recognize it, I want smacked with the truth. And if I refuse the truth, I want every effort taken to restore me to my greatest desire, what I really want, that is to live for God who loves me and gave his life for me. Reiterate the gospel and the need for the gospel. I'm personally thankful for the discipline of God. Through it, he has grown me and made me thankful for the cross and for his people. Let's pray. Lord, make us real. Make us submit to you in every aspect of our life, Lord. It's no longer us who live, but you living in us. And we want our relationship with you to be a healthy one. We want to be your instruments, your tools that you use to share your love. So, Father, we pray that you would cut us away from our sin to give us the power that you promised to resist temptation, that you would remind us of the gospel, that you didn't just forgive us to forgive us, Lord, but that your son Jesus died so that we would die to sin and live for you forever. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage, integrity, and above all, love. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, Before I share a benediction, I have one more verse. And that is 1 Corinthians 11.32. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world.